According to the Gun Violence Archive, a mass shooting is when there are four or more victims in a single incident. The U.S. has experienced over 50 mass shootings, with more than 70 dead and nearly 300 wounded, and that's just in May. Hello everyone and welcome as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this is episode 40. My guest this week is preparedness expert Vince Davis. And if you haven't guessed it, our topic is gun violence, but specifically mass shootings in the U.S. This week, Vince and I discuss, is this a gun problem or a morality issue? What is the bad man drill? And what you should be doing within your own organization to be as ready as possible for an active shooter event. I'll get into my conversation with Vince in a minute, but first, here's a brief word from Ashley at the Resilience Think Tank. Welcome to the Resilience Think Tank. I'm Ashley Guzman, and along with my co-founders, we created the Resilience Think Tank in 2021, dedicated to providing independent guidance and research to the risk and resilience industry. As founders, we're based in Canada, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and have a combined experience of over 87 years of helping organizations to become resilient. We are committed to ensuring diverse voices are included in making communities and organizations more resilient. I hope you'll join us. You know, I just spent a couple of days in D.C. with my youngest set of grandkids who are, you know, one school age, the other ones, two are school age, one is preschool age. And I can't even imagine the grief and the devastation that a parent has to lose a child under any circumstances, but especially under these circumstances. And so I asked myself, you know, what are we doing as a country? What are are we doing here? Uh, How did, how did we get here? You know, and how do we, how do we get out of this? And and one thing came to mind for me this week, uh, Mark, and I want to share this with you, you know, 1969, uh, comedian activist Dick Gregory in, in a statement regarding the, the riots that were taking place back in that, that period of time said, America is the most morally corrupt, degenerate, insane country on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, the context for that was the idea that somehow we could come out of these things with no moral compass. So I looked at this whole thing and I've been thinking about it as many have all week. And it's not, look, it's not a gun control issue. It's not a political issue. It's not a law enforcement issue. In my mind, it boils down to one thing and one thing only. It's a moral issue. When we can tell people that we don't care enough about your kids or their lives to change anything that we're already doing, you just don't want to change anything. Uh, And that, it comes down to, you know, a moral issue of caring more about money than it is about people. And and that's what we're up against. That's what we're fighting against. You know, we're fighting the good fight. I thought about the, the congressmen that were out on the baseball field and they got shot by a shooter who came randomly and attacked them. And those same Congress people who were attacked in that attack would not vote for better gun legislation. That's that's how morally corrupt they are. They would rather die than to do something that's going to affect their pocketbook or their campaign contributions or their ability to get elected. So, you know, I'm I'm feeling that something is going to have to happen 
to be that tipping point that I believe George Floyd was uh, two years ago, uh, where people are just going to say enough is enough. And I don't think we're there yet because you know why? It hasn't happened to the people who are who are basically controlling what happens. It hasn't happened to them yet. It's okay. always somebody else's kids. <laughs> okay, I, I hear what you're saying, but how much worse does it have to get? Well, you know, I, I said yesterday, and or so in one of my posts, uh, it's the it's the mass shooting playbook. Right. It's uh, you know, a shooter gets a weapon. Uh, he he decides on a target. He posted he or she posted on social media what his intentions were. Uh, he went and he carried it out. And then we came with the prayers and condolences and we came with the, uh, we're all outraged and upset. And then we came with the, let's, uh, let's talk about what we're going to do about it. And we came to the impasse that we're not going to do anything because nobody can agree on what to do. So therefore we go on to the next shooting and, and, and as outraged as, uh, as Steve Kerr, uh, who's the coach of the, uh, Golden State Warriors was the other day when he walked into an NBA press conference and said, I'm not here to talk about the the playoffs. I'm here to talk about how outraged I am about what this is. Until we as a people, as a general public, get outraged enough as he was to say, we're stopping everything and we're dropping everything. I think a good thing to do, two things I thought would be great solutions. A couple, couple of years ago, a few years ago, the pharmaceutical industry was under fire for providing oxycodone to, to drug addicts in, in Florida and other places yeah. uh, through these pain clinics where these doctors give out these prescriptions to people they know are drug addicted. And there were you know thousands and thousands of oxycodone pills were being distributed. So the pharmacy folks said, well, we're doing this legally. You know, we're getting legal prescriptions. Go after the doctors. It's not us. We're not prescribing this stuff. Well, you know, it's hard to go after doctors because guess what? The medical associations are going to fight you tooth and nail. Yeah. They're going to fight you in any way that they can to prevent uh, disbarring or, or uh, unlicensing a doctor for misconduct. So you can't get them fast enough because it takes years and years and thousands of dollars in court. So they decided, let's go after the pharmaceutical companies who are supplying the oxycodone. And when they did that and they started to levy hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars worth of fines, all of a sudden you saw this big change. Mm -hmm. So, so here's my solution. We go after the gun manufacturers and and every time there's a death involving a assault rifle, assault weapon, millions of dollars of fines are attached to that death. And if it's a police officer, it's triple. And if it's a child, it's, it's triple, triple the amount. Right. And, and, And we find the gun manufacturers because they don't get to say, well, we only make guns. We don't know what people do with them, and we really don't have anything to do with that. They can't distance themselves from the acts that are being committed by the product that they're creating. Yes, yeah, no more than you could do that with oxycodone. So, yeah, it's that tired old saying that they tried to throw out there that guns don't kill people; people kill people. Right, exactly. Or oh. it's a mental health issue. Like we have, like we have worse mental health in this country than any other country in the world. Uh, we, we have a we have a gun problem, but we also have a moral problem, <laughs> and and our moral compass is is completely out of whack. In in that we can look at these little kids calling on the phone nine one one from inside the classroom while they're there with the person who's about to kill them, right. and pleading for somebody to come help them. 
but yet we can't come to any kind of consensus as to what we need to do about it. I, I want to tell you a story because you, you mentioned the kids again. Uh, I'm in the Cayman Islands this week with a client. Um, I know it's tough. Somebody's got to do it, though. I mean, these people here need uh, consulting help, too, so that's fine. But my wife and I were at the beach uh, after a work day, and we got talking to a gentleman from Texas. And when we heard that he was from Texas, my wife said, wow, you guys have had a, a tough few days here. And he said, let me tell you a story, and I'm going to tell you the story he told us. At the end of the day, when their children are sitting around the dinner table, they always say, so tell me what was the highlight of your day? And I'm going to struggle to get through this story, but I'm going to do my best. His five-year-old said, well, we had a fire drill today and I did really good, but I didn't do good in the bad man drill. Okay. The bad man drill. The bad man drill. And he said, honey, what's the bad man drill? And she said, oh, that's when a bad man comes into the building with a gun. I didn't like that drill. She said, they made us hide in the closet. We had to be as quiet as a mouse. And if he tried to get in, we had to push against the door so he didn't get in. This is what our children are living. Five years old. Yeah. yeah. Come on. It's unconscionable. I mean, you no. can't even get your head around it. I, you know, my little eight-year-old granddaughter down in North Carolina, just a typical eight-year-old. Not special, just very precocious and very smart and very excited about life and learning new things. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I told him, I talked to my daughter the other day and I said, if I were you, I'd take her out of school, period. Yeah. Because I, I don't trust and neither should you that the school authorities or anybody else can do anything to protect her. Mm -hmm. Not that they can't, but that they won't. So, you know, and then I talked to another colleague of mine who said, well, you know, it's just, we need to just harden these targets. We need to, we need to fortify these schools. And I was like, yeah, I want my child going to school in a prison camp. Right. I might and as well send them to the state penitentiary. And you don't want the I wanted... teachers with guns. That's not. Right. That's... Yeah. Let's arm the teachers. I That's mean, not their people skill. are serious about this. Right. Literally, they're as serious about it as people during the onset of the pandemic were about Send all the old people, this us 65 and older people back to work because they're expendable. If they die from COVID, we'll at least save the economy. Yeah. yeah. People were serious about that. Yeah. So, so you know, the, the, the rash of any excuse other than regulating who gets to have a gun and who doesn't get to have a gun is good enough as long as it's not, it has nothing to do with any kind of regulation on guns. And by the way, in the state of Texas where this tragedy happened, you know, they just passed 22 different laws about possession that requires no training, no license, and allows concealment. Let's make it as easy as possible for anybody to get a gun for any reason. Right. Which right. is completely insane. I, I want to go back to the second part of the story from this guy that we met from Texas. He's a he's an army vet. He served in Iraq. He looked at me and he said, I own three AR-15s. And he said, Let's be clear. I don't need an AR-15. There is only one purpose for an AR-15, and that is for killing people, for shooting as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time. And he said this latest tragedy, which is right in his backyard, made him realize he doesn't need those guns, and he's turning them in when he gets home from vacation. Now, that's a man of integrity right there. And uh, 
And, and you're right. And, and look, Mark, I've talked to, I know lots of folks who own guns. I'm not a gun owner. I've never have been. Uh, don't believe in them. Was never around them growing up. My dad was a police officer for the VA. He had a firearm that he carried for work. Yeah. I, of course, fired weapons in the military when I was in the, uh, the Air Force and the Air National Guard and Army National Guard. But as far as being a weapons owner or a gun proponent, I just don't believe in them. I think, uh, you know, I believe in the statistics. The data shows that having a gun increases your risk. Just owning a gun increases your risk 200 yeah. percent of something happening in your house. And then I read another stat that was really disturbing the other day, which was, you know, two thirds of gun ownerships of gun owners uh, um, are are victims of their own weapons. Oh, wow. And that and that suicide, believe it or not. People sure. killing themselves with their own weapons is the greatest cause of firearm deaths, far greater than mass shootings, far greater than any other reason or rationale is people actually killing themselves. And I thought, well, that's weird. So you mean if I got so depressed that I wanted to hurt myself, if I didn't have a gun around, my chances of getting past that and getting the help I needed would be much greater than me going into the gun safe and getting the nine millimeter out and blowing my brains out. Really? Yeah. Yet people, yet people have this fascination. Uh, there there's more guns now in this country than there are cars or people uh, by far over yeah, 400 look, million weapons. Some people want to make the argument, look, I, I, I want a gun. I want to be able to hunt. Okay. You know what? You want a shotgun. You want to be able to go hunt. That's fine. You don't need a AR 15 to go hunt. But rabbits. Right. Right. Nothing, nothing left of the rabbit that's for sure i, I want to go to something else and it, it's number two or three or whatever it was in your playbook that you mentioned there the mass shooting playbook and that's prayers and condolences i know you and i are, are both men of faith and we both pray but finish the sentence faith without works is yeah. dead. it's dead. dead yeah so to sit here and say oh you know my prayers go out to these families. Yeah, they do, but it can't stop there. Yeah. If you're not doing anything about it, if you're not acting on that faith and on that prayer, then you might as well be praying into a tunnel uh, or, or a sewer or into a, a paper bag because it's, it's meaningless. It has no impact. It has no effect. God gave us the will to, to, to pray, but he also gave us the will to act. And the fact that we can't seem to act when it's most important. We talk about how much we love our kids. You know, a late, late colleague of mine who passed away some years ago, uh, Ken Bivens used to tell me he was creating some books for, to teach kids about disasters. And he and I were working on a number of things together around children. Uh, said to me one day, he said, Vince, we're only going to get to people if we get to them where it matters most, which is their kids. People don't care about anything more than they care about their kids. Well, now I'm not so sure. Yeah. I'm not so sure if we care more about anything uh, else other than our kids. When we allow this kind of thing to happen, 10 years ago at Sandy Hook, uh, we had people coming out and saying that was just staged by the, the left wing who's trying to scare us so they can take away our guns. I mean, we had people who were seriously out there saying they just got a bunch of actors and that didn't really happen. Uh, and so, you know, we've got a twisted sense of morality in this country. And I don't know, I don't know how we fix that. I don't know how we get back to uh, 
the moral high ground that we used to be able to take as Americans. Uh, I talked to somebody from a foreign country the other day and he said, I think I love everything about America. I just, I, I love the economy. I love the, the freedom. Uh, you know, I love the, just the, the fun things about the United States, the opportunity, you know, and I've been thinking for years, the last four or five years about moving my family to America. He said, and be honest with you, the only thing that stops me is I'm afraid of gun violence. It's oh. such a violent place. Yeah. Uh, you know, people just get killed anywhere, anytime for no reason whatsoever. I was walking down the street and all of a sudden somebody started firing a weapon out of a car. He said, that's scary to me. I can't lose my family like that. And it's real to him because he's looking at it from the outside, looking in right. very, very objectively while we've become so numb to it that, you know, the response of the, the governor of Texas uh, was to uh, compare the number of deaths they had to the number of deaths in, in my city, Chicago. <laughs> that was his response to it. Well, we're not as bad as Chicago. Well, they are, but uh, 3,683 gun deaths in, in Texas, 1,367 in Chicago. So, wow. uh, and you know, those are not all Chicago. That's all of Illinois. But let's assume that most of them happened in Chicago because it's the biggest city. Still, right. three to one uh, by a three to one margin, we are we are not as bad as people think we are. So, but how do we get into those comparisons? Like it's some kind of a, a, a contest as to who's the worst. I was speaking with an organization, the CEO of an organization, not too long ago. We were talking about some cyber vulnerabilities that they had, and he goes, "Yeah, we have some pretty." bad vulnerabilities, but we're not as bad as X. This is not a comparison between you and X. And it's not a comparison between Texas and Chicago. Are you doing it well or are you not doing it well? And I think part of the problem is uh, a complacency. Uh, I, I have a saying when it comes to natural disasters that a tornado on TV is just a tornado on TV until it lands in your backyard. And we talk about how horrified we are at this and that, or we hear about this shooting or that shooting. But like you said, until it affects you, you will probably not be compelled to act. And I'm not sure what that tipping point is. Uh, I know we talked about it, but. It's a long way away for most people. They can't make that leap. Having worked in disasters for so long, it's probably easier for me to make that leap because I've been out there in those communities, like you say, to see the devastation firsthand can't get a sense of it on TV. Uh, but but the other thing, Mark, is that, you know, uh, it goes back to my four stages of denial and disasters. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen to me. If it happens to me, I'll deal with it at the time. Or if it happens to me, there's nothing I could have done about it. Mm -hmm. and, and we have that same sense of denial when it comes to these mass shootings, unless we know somebody who has died uh, personally know somebody who has lost their child uh, in one of these mass shootings, we tend to sort of turn the page on that rather quickly. And guess what? The gun manufacturers, the gun lobbyists, and the gun pundits all count on that. They count on the fact that two days from next week, Tuesday, we're not going to be talking about this anymore. Right. Everybody will have moved on until the next shooting. So that's my number nine in the playbook, which is just wait them out. Because they'll forget about it pretty soon and we'll just go on until the next shooting happens and then we'll put our heads down and we'll pretend like, you know, you, you see politicians running like roaches with the light on. 
right now who don't want to talk about what they haven't done with regard to gun legislation. They just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to talk about it. And they don't want anybody else talking about it because it's obvious to everybody that the millions of dollars that are being spent by the gun lobbies to keep this going and to make sure that as many guns get sold, they don't care to whom because it's not affecting them or their kids either. Right. It's affecting their bottom line, their pocketbook, and the politicians who are beholden to them because I got, I couldn't believe it. Uh, one senator got $13 million, almost $14 million in money from the National Rifle Association. Really? Yeah. yeah. So, so th there's the accountability. And it, it's all about the money. Uh, but in answer to Dick Gregory's uh, assertion that we're the most morally corrupt, degenerate, insane country, he also said, in order for us to create an atmosphere where we're going to get past these problems, we have to create an atmosphere where we trust one another. And right now, nobody trusts anybody. No. Nobody trusts nobody trusts our government to do anything because we've elected these people. We sent them to, to Washington to supposedly carry out our interests, but yet they're really carrying out their own interests. Uh, it, yeah, but there are networks in the media that are playing off of that, too. And I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. I don't care. Right is right. Morals are morals and do the right thing. And like the congressman said or senator said earlier this week, I'm pleading with you. Let's find some common ground here and get this fixed. But let me ask you this. Let's assume they're not going to fix it or they're not going to fix it anytime soon. The purpose of this podcast is to talk about resilience and what do we need to do to help protect our organizations from active shooter situations? If I look through the gun violence archive database, it's all over. It's not just Texas, North Carolina, California, Wisconsin, everywhere, Pennsylvania, everywhere. New York, it's everywhere. What should we be doing in our industry to help prepare our own organizations for things like this? Well, I think. Uh, the most productive thing that any of us can do is to practice. You know, you can have a plan and, and you know, there's a, there's an award that's given out by Homeland Security called the Rick Riscola Award. Uh, and it, it's, it's uh, in honor of Rick Riscola, who was uh, an employee at one of the firms that was destroyed in the 9-11 uh, attacks in New York City at the okay. World Trade Center. And he was known as the preparedness nut. He was the guy in the office who was always talking about, we're doing a drill and we're doing this and we're doing that. And people were like, oh, what a big pain in the butt this guy is. <laughs> He's all with his drills and exercises. Well, lo and behold, uh, I think it was 90%. I believe the firm was Cantor Fitzgerald. I forget the firm that he worked for. But 90, 95% of the people in that firm escaped with their lives during the 9-11 attacks. And it was because of all the drills they had done. They had been so versed in what to do. And they had a, a point of context from which to work to know that they had to escape and escape. Now, I had a friend who was there in 9-11, believe it or not, who survived. A very close friend of mine who lives a few miles from me here in Chicago uh, was there on business meeting with a client. Just sat down to meet with the client. They heard the announcement over the PA. The client he was meeting with said, we're out of here. Let's go. Leave your suitcase 
they started down there on the 58th floor in Tower One. Long story short, this guy said, well, wh- why are we leaving? Didn't they say over the PA to stand by for further instruction? They didn't say anything about leaving. He said, I was here for the 94 World Trade Center bombing. Uh, we're not staying. We're getting out of here. Wow. And that decision, again, was based on context. It was based on experience. But you only get that context and experience by drills and exercises. Love I'm that. a big proponent of practicing and practicing and practicing something so that when you have to use it, you are so comfortable with what you need to do that you don't have to think about it. Because if you have to think about it, you're probably not going to survive. Uh, so so I think the one thing that we can do as organizations to become resilient is to be that Rick Riscola person. Have that person or persons on your staff that is nothing but all about practicing uh, evacuation, practicing shelter in place practicing lockdown drills, uh, practicing for all manner of tragedies, no matter how ridiculous or how far-fetched mm-hmm. it might seem, mm-hmm. so that when people are confronted with those tragedies, they make good decisions about their own survival, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, God forbid it's a little boy or a little girl in a closet saying, I need to push back if they're trying to get in. But the fact that they even knew how to do that, as sad as it is at that age that we have to learn that stuff, uh, we have to teach our, our people, our children and adults, uh, how to survive. So that's, that's one. I think the second thing is really important, and that's teaching life-sustaining first aid skills, basic CPR and basic first aid. Because the bystander is going to be the, the last link in your chain of survival if something horrendous happens. Police aren't going to be there fast enough. Uh, EMS can't get there fast enough. Yeah. It's the person next to you, the person around you. God forbid if I'm riding on an elevator and I suddenly experience a heart attack, uh, that somebody on that elevator is going to know CPR because I won't survive in the time it's going to take EMS to send an ambulance there to treat to, to try to save my life. I'm not going to make it. That's a really good point. It doesn't even have to be an active shooter situation. I had a meeting here with my client this week. A guy came in and he says, listen, I don't think I can continue this meeting. I'm having chest pains. And, you know, we got him some help. But if it had gotten worse than that, I would not have been prepared. And uh, I was telling my wife about it uh, afterwards. And she said, and you got to get some CPR training. You got to get get it together here. You got to uh, get what you need. And I'm like, yeah, you're, you're right. I have to do that. Vince, right out of time, but I want to give you the last word, man. Go ahead. We are all doubly devastated because we work so hard every day, all of us to try to help people. And, uh, and, and, and so it's a setback for us in so many ways because we get discouraged when we see things happening that are so unnecessary and so avoidable. And yet, we have to somehow find that strength and that determination to keep going. You know, and I was one of those people who last week, to be honest with you, I just, I checked out. Right. I took some time off. I didn't turn on the television. I didn't turn on the news. And I just checked out because I had to keep my sanity because I know that next week I'm going to have to be somewhere doing this work again, trying to help people get prepared for disasters to survive. So I say the only thing that we can do is to, you know, check out if you need to check out to keep your sanity, 
a change is going to come. Nothing is forever. And as horrendous as this all seems, uh, my mother used to say, my late mother used to say, this too shall pass. Right. And we're going to look at this one day and say, remember back in the days when there was an epidemic of you know, mass shootings and it was happening every day? Now look where we are. We'll get there. I don't know how. Don't know when. Wish I knew all the answers. But we just have to maintain our faith that not that people are going to do the right thing, but that there is a God somewhere who is looking at all of this and is going to right that ship and put it in the right direction. And, and create that higher purpose uh, beyond what we see happening now. I hope you're right. Vince, thanks for taking a few minutes to be here with me today. Thank you. And Mark, uh, you and your family, take take good care. Uh, uh, we will talk very soon, my friend. And, uh, and uh, as always, thank you for having me on. I want to thank Vince Davis for joining me and speaking his mind about mass shootings today on The Resilient Journey. And as always, a very special thanks to my colleagues at the Resilience Think Tank for sponsoring the podcast. Learn more about the Resilience Think Tank at resiliencethinktank.com. We had originally scheduled Roberta Anderson Sutton to be this week's guest, but we pushed her back a week to fit in this very important discussion about mass shootings. We'll talk to Roberta next week about some insurance-related things pertaining to cyber. So join us, won't you? as we continue our resilient journey.